Take your Bibles and go to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, going through the book of Nehemiah, we've only had one sermon in Nehemiah so far. So if you're new here tonight, you're kind of getting in on the ground floor. What we did last week, we kind of gave an overview of the book of Nehemiah. Really, it was much of a history lesson. If you were here last week, there was a lot of history going on. Uh, but I, I enjoyed even that, uh, going through and showing how the historical truth, historical records match up with biblical records. And again, I know you say, well, we believe the Bible because we know it's true. It's a book from God and praise the Lord for that. But what a wonderful thing to be able to look back and see how history intersects with Bible history and to see that they're on the same page. Yet one more validation of the word of God uh, as we look at it. So we got to see all these people that are mentioned uh, we showed kind of uh, what you may have remembered from the Chronicles and the Kings, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and then, of course, how all the way down to Belshazzar, then being taken over by the Medes and the Persians, how Darius took over as well, and then from Darius all the way down to Artaxerxes, who is currently what we would call that empire. Um, it used to be the Babylonian Empire, and now it is the Persian Empire or the Medo-Persian Empire is who is in power right now in Nehemiah's day. Uh, which just a few centuries from this point, we're going to have the Greeks take over, Alexander the Great, and the Greeks will take over and be the world power, um, Not, I say relatively not that much longer after Nehemiah's day. And uh, then the Roman Empire, of course, is when the, the life of Jesus takes place. But all of that's kind of, we, we did a lot of that history to kind of show what was going on and, uh, and what a blessing it was to see, again, the validity of the Word of God and some of the powerful truths there. But Today, Nehemiah is, uh, we are going to go through this. It's not quite as detailed as some like Hebrew. We just take a few verses at a time and just really uh, focus on them. Much of the book of Nehemiah is narrative. And so we'll, we'll, it's, a, it's basically Nehemiah was writing his memoir, is what many call it, and uh, keeping track of what happened, of course, inspired by the Holy Ghost and preserved for us today. Uh, so for the most part, we're doing larger chunk. But today, we're going to focus only on the first four Verses And again, we'll do more bigger chunks as we go through on Sunday night. But this evening, Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the title of the message is to have a burden. Chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, and it came to pass in the month Chizlu in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the palace, that Hanani, that's a shortened version of Hananiah, one of my brethren, Came he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And the rest of this chapter details his prayer all the way to about the middle of verse 11 or the end of verse 11 when it picks up the narrative again describing his position as the king's cupbearer. But let's ask the Lord's blessings on the message and we'll get right into the, the sermon tonight. Father, we thank you for the book of Nehemiah. Thank you for the powerful lessons for all of us uh, at, out of this book. I pray that you would open our hearts and teach us. I pray the Holy Spirit would move in a special way. Empty me of myself and fill me with your power. 
as I communicate the words. And may we have a heart of understanding tonight as we open up your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember in many ways Nehemiah had it made. Uh, a lot of the Jews, remember, they were a conquered people. And Daniel was one of the ones that, quote, had it made back when he was taken over by Nebuchadnezzar. He would have been a little more sorrowful at the first being a prince taken out of his country, taken away from his family, taken away from his position as a prince in his own country. But if you'll remember how the Lord moved in Daniel's life, he became one of the top advisors to the king of the entire empire, not just under Nebuchadnezzar, but also under Darius, uh, even under Belshazzar for the brief, brief moments that Belshazzar recognized Daniel before he was taken over that very night. He was second in the kingdom. Daniel had quite the position, but Nehemiah really does have quite the position. Most of the Jews do not have positions like this. Most of the Jews uh, are a conquered people. They're working in, in, in trade-level jobs. They're working, uh, and some of them are back in Jerusalem trying to keep up basically enough people to keep that city moving and functioning to be that uh, critical buffer province, remember, between Egypt and the Persian Empire because of the tensions that were there. And so a lot of the Jews didn't have a lofty position. Nehemiah has a pretty lofty position. Made in the shade. He was the king's cupbearer, which was a position that afforded him a home in the palace, closeness to the king, and a life of relative luxury in comparison to many of his Jewish counterparts. What one man termed the frowning providence of God had driven his people from their homeland in Jerusalem. This had been prophesied and prophesied, forewarned and predicted for years, centuries even. And yet the people of Israel would not repent. And so the frowning providence of God pushed them out of Jerusalem, but it concealed a smiling face toward Nehemiah, who had grown up in the Babylonian capital and enjoyed the privileges of being among the king's court. Remember, Nehemiah would have grown up in the captivity, never knowing what it was like uh, for Israel to be its own nation. Nevertheless, as we read these opening verses of Nehemiah, we find that the comforts of Babylon were not enough to overrule Nehemiah's concern for the things of God and the things of God's people. Nehemiah was a man who became consumed with a burden. In his example, we're reminded that whenever God uses a person to accomplish his work, it all begins with a burden. Now, I've got to pause here and just comment as we're looking at Nehemiah's life. First of all, he didn't let the trappings of his current position uh, give him amnesia about who he really was and where he really was from. Does that sound familiar today? Is it possible that we as Christians living in this world, even in such a wonderful country such as the United States of America, and although we understand there's things we don't agree with, there's things that we frown upon, there's things that torture our soul about our wonderful country, we still have an incredible amount of religious freedom. For instance, we're not hiding tonight. We're live streaming our service on a very public platform. There is no threat as of now for someone to come barging in these doors and to arrest all of us for worshiping freely. That doesn't happen in our country. And it may be that in this relative ease and what we might call luxurious living, we don't have persecution. I'm able to get a job and be a Christian at the same time. That wasn't the case for many Christians or even some Christians even today in different parts of the world. Let's remember that even though we are in this world, Christians, we are not of this world. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. 
My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. We're pilgrims. We're strangers. We're sojourning in this world. I hope that we, like Nehemiah, even though we're living in a wonderful country such as America, we're citizens of heaven first. Let us not forget that our king is the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that our eyes ought to be set on things above, not on things on the earth. Let's never forget that even though we may have relative east, there are still people around us that are lost and dying and on their way to a literal terrible judgment called hell. That we must give the word out, give the gospel message out of a God who loves those people, who died for those people so they don't have to suffer for eternity. The second thing we ought to pay attention to and comment on is that Nehemiah's great big work, you may be familiar with the miraculous work of Nehemiah in rebuilding the temple like he did, also bringing about religious, spiritual reform to the, the city of Jerusalem. It all started with a burden. It started with some tears. Now think about that if you would. Some of the greatest, greatest things that happen in the Word of God, you can trace them back to a very simple origin. A fellow by the name of Alan Redpath said this, You never lighten the load unless first you have felt the pressure in your own soul. You are never used of God to bring blessing until God has opened your eyes and made you see things as they are. Nehemiah was called to build the wall, but first he had to weep over the ruins. Now you think about the significance of that statement. What, why would we give toward the missions program if we're not weeping over the lost souls in the different countries around the world? Why would we give up of our time to help out our neighbor and to give out the gospel in our own town if we don't first weep over the plight of our lost uh, friends and family and neighbors and co-workers. Today we often talk of burdens like something to lay down or to be rid of as quickly as possible. Ah, oh, what a burden. I can't wait to get rid of this burden. Yet God uses burdens of a certain kind to motivate his people into action. He'll give you a burden that's supposed to weigh your heart down, that's supposed to make you moved Maybe even bring you to this point like Nehemiah of mourning and weeping so that you'll be motivated to do something about it. Pastor Terry Trevette said this, It is not fame or fortune, greed or glory that compels a missionary to leave all for a foreign land. It is a burden. The real work of God is not accomplished by those who are at ease in Zion. It is accomplished by those who are pushed to their knees about Zion. I thought that was a great statement. We're going to move forward for the things of God. We have to be burdened for the things of God. Looking at Nehemiah's situation, the date of this conversation that took place between him and his brother was about this time of year, mid-November to mid-December. Uh, that's the month Chislu on their calendar. It would be about right about now or pretty close to it on our calendar. It'd be 446 B.C., give or take a few years, and the approach to the king in chapter 2 would have taken place the following March or April of 445 B.C. Both fell within the 20th year of Artaxerxes, who reigned between 464 and 423. And again, it was about 13 years since Ezra has set out for Jerusalem back in Ezra chapter 7. Remember, he went to rebuild the temple. And Nehemiah goes to rebuild the wall. The Hebrew month of Chivlu runs from mid-November to mid-December. And... Uh, it says that he was in Shushan, the palace. Now, Shushan, you might also read it in history if you're looking up history book, also called Susa. Um, that was the capital city of the Persian Empire and the site of the king's winter palace. Um, 
So he was going there. Uh, that would have been a very normal occurrence to be in Shushan the palace with the king. He was a cupbearer. And what's interesting, it was probably just a pretty routine day for Nehemiah. I imagine on this very day where he received such a great burden that he got up and he, he cleaned himself and dressed himself like normal, perhaps ate like normal, went about his duty, got to work on time like normal, uh, ministered to the king like normal, uh, probably tasted the king's wine before giving it to him like normal, uh, was an advisor to the king like normal, and then received a guest, which probably wasn't abnormal for a man who was in the king's cabinet. And the guest was his brother, Hananiah. And Hananiah came, and Hananiah was obviously shooken up. Hananiah probably has some tear stains down his cheeks as well. And I imagine the terror and the tremble in his voice as he told his brother what he had just seen. They had gone down to Judah. They had gone to the city of Jerusalem, and they had seen it broken down. But it was probably just a normal day when he met Hananiah. One wise man said this, Like large doors, great life-changing events can swing on very small hinges. I say, you know, I don't know. I tell you what, a preacher, I can't wait. You know, if there's ever a law like in Daniel's day, back when Nebuchadnezzar was the king, and, and I remember Daniel, uh, oh, I remember they had that law that said you can't worship any god except for the king, uh, King Darius, and that, that was the law. And Daniel got up, and, 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 and he got on his knees, and he prayed to the God of heaven. And even though he knew it was the law, he stood up for God, and he was thrown in the lion's den, and God had an amazing plan and a miraculous victory. I tell you what, if that ever happened in a America, I would be like Daniel, would you? Because if you remember that story, it said that Daniel opened his windows, faced toward Jerusalem, and prayed, very important words coming up, as he did aforetime. That was Daniel's habit. That's what Daniel always did. It was his routine to seek the God of heaven. So when they made a law that says you can't, Daniel just simply did what he always did. And God worked in a marvelous way. I think in Daniel's life, it was a pretty routine day too. And here in Nehemiah's life, it was a pretty routine day. It was just another day when Moses went out to care for his sheep. But on that day, he saw a burning bush. It was an ordinary day when David was called home from shepherding out in the field. But on that day, he was anointed king. It was an ordinary day when Peter and Andrew and James and John were mending their nets. After another night of failure at fishing. But that was the day Jesus called them to be his disciples and fishers of men. You never know what God has in store. You never know what day that seems routine may be the beginning of something great that God is doing. It might even be in a commonplace conversation with a friend or a relative. So even in the commonplace, even in the routine, I encourage you, church, keep your heart open to God's providential leading. I always talk to my sister on the phone. I, I always see this guy at work. Why I always go this way. What if that day, today, is the day that God wants you to do something great? Listen always for the leading, the providential leading of the Lord, because it's interesting on this day, it was probably a normal day, a routine day for Nehemiah, but that was the day that a great life-changing event took place. But it was the beginning of a life-changing event. Hananiah, uh, his name means the Lord has been gracious. He was one of the brothers. Now, when you see one of my brethren, you might think, well, this is probably just means a Jew, not one of his physical brothers. In chapter 7, we see him again, and he seems more like an actual 
sibling brother. And so we'll, we'll take it to mean that even here, the same Hananiah is mentioned later on. And so it does seem like it's his actual brother that he's talking about. And he gives him the news. Now notice Nehemiah's reaction to the news is so strong. He was burdened. Now you might say, well, hang on, preacher. I've done my, my share of history. Uh, wasn't it Nebuchadnezzar that came through and broke down the walls of Jerusalem and burned the gates with fire? Well, that would be not really make sense with Nehemiah's reaction, right? That would have been 140 years ago. Nehemiah wouldn't have even been alive to see the walls and gates as they once were. He never was alive to see the original temple in all of its glory. He wouldn't have known that. This was a long time ago. So he's not weeping at the original destruction of the walls. What we do find out, if you read in Ezra chapter 4, verses 7 through 23, that as they're building the temple, there is, without getting authorization, without going to, through the proper channels, they did have permission to rebuild the temple, we know why if we read a little bit about uh, biblical history and secular history because they needed to have that worship place up and going uh, because they wanted, again, to get that city up and going to be a buffer province. And they knew, not having the, they knew having the temple would draw more Jews to the city of Jerusalem. However, Ezra and the crew there began to put up some gates, began to build a wall again. But they were stopped. And the progress that was made, probably what Hananiah was going to check on, the progress that had been made was absolutely undone. And the joy they had at seeing their city come back, the city that God had put his promises upon, was heartbreaking, devastating, because it was being broken down and on fire yet again. So this recent event, not yet known to the palace there in Susa, was reported to uh, Nehemiah and, of course, to the king as well, probably very shortly after or before, um, by probably Hananiah and his friends. They were probably delegates from uh, our Xerxes over to Jerusalem to see how things were going. So uh, this, he was being crushed in spirit when he heard this news. So this, uh, and again, you can read a little bit more about this in Ezra. You can read a little bit more about this uh, in secular history as well. But when this happened, Ezra 7, you can read about this, when they came through, the enemies of Israel, the enemies of God came through and destroyed the little progress they had made on the walls and the gate. Now Jerusalem was not only disarmed, but absolutely on its own. Artaxerxes was not uh, defending the people of Jerusalem. He wasn't going to put up walls. He wasn't going to put up gates. Even though he had authorized the building of the temple, uh, he was allowing the, the city to be wide open to the enemies of God. So Nehemiah, understanding all of that, he said, when I heard these words, verse 4, I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. George Bernard Shaw, in one of his plays, had one of his characters make this statement. The worst sin toward our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. Because that's the essence of of inhumanity, to be indifferent to another's need. I think he's hitting on something, don't you? Not to hate someone, but to be totally indifferent toward them. Nehemiah, when he heard this, he became extremely concerned right away. And there are several things he could have said. He could say, oh man, it's too bad, brothers. Boy, what a rough, what a rough blow. Man, I'm sorry to hear that. You know what he could have said in our modern day? Oh man, that's hard. You know what? I'll pray for you. And that could have been the end of it. He said, oh, man, that's, that's tough. Ah, oh, 
man, that just stinks. Ah, bummer. Well, praise God that I have a nice cushy job here in, here in the palace. Wow, I'm glad I'm not in Jerusalem. Man, that just, that just really rots. Well, maybe somebody someday will do something about that problem. He could have. We mentioned that last week, didn't we? That there's some people that are, uh, they, they learn about what's going on. There's some people that take action to do what is going on, and there's some people that have no idea what's going on. Nehemiah was one of those people that took action rather than being one of the people who just didn't care. One man said this, Warren Wearsby, he says, some people prefer not to know what's going on because information might bring obligation. Have you ever thought about that? Somebody, yeah, I don't need to know that. I, I, that. Because if I know, I feel like I'll have a duty to do something about it. And to be honest, I don't really want to do anything. I'd rather stay comfortable. I'd rather keep going in my life. Come on, you've been there, haven't you? I know my wife and I have. We have a budget, and we're working our budget, and it takes a ton of effort to stay on budget. Come on, doesn't it? It takes a ton of effort sometimes to stay on budget and to say no, and to say no, and to do this, and to do that, and to follow your budget, and to make your plans, and to prepare to buy certain things with your saving, and little by little by little every month you save up just enough so that you can purchase the one thing that you need, and you're working your budget, and you're working your plan for month after month after month and then you get some information that requires some obligation. I've been there. I'll tell you a story. I won't give out anybody's name, but there was a, a family in the church. They were in desperate need, and they came to me, and they said, Pastor, we're about to be evicted out of our home. And we need $500. I said, man, that's, that's a lot of money. Uh, and I went to the church, and then I talked to some people, uh, and I said, hey, can we, can we give this family $500? They said, we can't. We don't have the money to do it. And I said, man, I don't know what to do. I said, this is terrible. This family's going to be kicked out. I just, and we didn't have $500 to give them. That Sunday, I prayed for them, and I said, Lord, if you would have me to do anything about this, please show me what you'd have me to do. I, I don't have $500 to give. I, I want to, but I just don't have it. I'd have to break open my IRA and take all the penalty. But, Lord, if that's what you want, I mean, what do you want me to do? We prayed. That Sunday, they told me on a Saturday, that Sunday, I got a $500 Christmas bonus from the church. Wonderful, unexpected, great blessing. And uh, right away I knew exactly why the Lord had given us that $500 bonus. Now, would that have been nice to our Christmas present? Sure, yes. Right away we... Didn't hardly even have to pray because we'd been praying. We tithed off of it, gave her $50 to the Lord, added $50 from our own budget to that, walked up to that family and said, hey, keep your family off the streets. Stay in your home for another month. They were very gracious. Now they said, oh, we'll pay you back, we'll pay you back. Never thought they would. They didn't have to. I just said, well, we're just going to give you this 500 bucks." That's hard to do because that information kind of gave me an obligation and that would have been real nice to keep that bonus, real nice to keep that extra 50 bucks and do what we were planning to do with that 50 bucks. Well, time goes on. That's not the end of the story, don't worry. Time goes on. Years later, I mean years, we're talking three, four, maybe five years later, we're at a point in our lives where we're going through some financial difficulty. We're budgeting like we should, planning like we should, yet we're coming up short with some special medical needs in our life. And this particular family that my wife and I had helped keep their family warm for yet another month, they had already moved away, and they came back to visit the church. 
And at the end of the service, no one in our church knew that we were praying for God to help us financially through a difficult time. We didn't share that with anyone. We were just talking to the Lord. And out of nowhere, this family had been visited. I was so happy to see them. It's always wonderful to see old friends. They came up and put $500 in my hand. And I said, what in the world is this? I had no idea. I truly had forgotten. They said, this is for however many years ago it was. You gave us the money for rent. And you know what? This was something that we, we just felt like it was, we, ha we have the money now. We just wanted to pay you back. I said, you don't have to pay me back. That wasn't a loan. That was a gift. They said, we know, but God's just telling us to do this today. That was what we needed for that time. Say, man, I tell you what, information brings obligation. Yes, it does, but if you'll follow the leading of the Lord, kind of like Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, cast thy bread out upon the waters because it will return not many days hence. If you'll listen to the leading of the Lord, you may have a story like that. And I remember how much we were rejoicing and how much glory went to God at that point in time when we received $500 from a very unexpected source to help us through our medical difficulties during that time. Why do you share that with us? Well, because sometimes when you get, the, you get frustrated with the fact that information brings obligation, don't ever forget that God gave you that information, brought that information along your way for a reason. You may be, like I was, before I got that bonus, I truly wasn't able to help financially. I could not physically help them financially. I was praying. God gave us the means. We helped them. And then, so, oh, man, that was just such an obligation that you had to give that. I know, but wasn't it cool how God brought that back years later to help us out when we were going through a hard time? What an incredible God we serve. So don't get frustrated if you get the information that may lead you to, quote, obligation, because it may just be uh, not that you're obligated to help someone, but God just may want to involve you in something great. You may not know about it for five years, but God wants to involve you in something great to give him more glory. So... <clears throat> Uh, let me continue. Uh, Mr. Wearsby also quotes uh, Mark Twain. Mark Twain, uh, he was writing to a, a, in a letter to Mrs. Foote. He said this, you know, you've heard the old adage, what you don't know can't hurt you. This is what Mark Twain said. All you need in this life is ignorance and confidence. Then success is sure. Isn't that true? Ignorance and confidence. Yep. I think we might know a few medics like that, don't we, Phoenix? No, I hope not. I hope not, you know. But I've, I've known a few people, whether you're in the medical field or whether you're in a business field, a finance field, whether you're in your mechanic. I know a whole lot of mechanics that have a lot of ignorance and a lot of confidence. Uh-huh. They don't stay mechanics for too long. He was right. All you need in this life is ignorance and confidence, then success is sure. But truthfully... What we don't know can hurt us a great deal. Mr. Wearsby says there are people in the cemetery who chose not to know the truth. I mentioned a little bit about that this morning. Truth is truth. Whether we know it, whether we believe it, whether we act on it, truth is always true. Nehemiah receives this information and then he immediately is moved by it. He has this obligation of this burden for the people of Jerusalem, the people of God, the, what was going on there. He wanted to be a part of what God was going to do in Jerusalem. He wanted to be a part of God's solution. Well, we know about Nehemiah. Wow, what a man of action. He sprung up right away and did something about it, didn't he? Hold your horses. What did Nehemiah do? Let's pay attention. Verse 4. came to pass when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. So you know it's okay. The Lord gives you some bad news. The Lord moves you. Uh, it's okay for you when you hear about something to sit down and weep and to mourn. 
I'm a man, I don't cry. I should hope you cry about something. I'm not being weird here. I hope you cry about something. I hope there's something able to get through to you to touch your heart. I don't cry much. I try to be manly. I try not to cry about silly things and little things. I have a little boy that I'm going to raise to be a godly man. And I'm not going to want him to cry about little sissy things, but I sure hope I teach him to cry about the right things. I sure hope I teach him that those hot tears streaming down his face are collected by God to move him to action in certain situations. It's okay and it's right to cry in the morn. We want to see that. So he does, he, he sits down and weeps. And then what does he do? He, he fasted and he prayed before the God of heaven. This dynamic man of action spends time praying and fasting. Well, how long? I don't know if he, he didn't fast this entire time, but he did do a lot of fasting and he did a lot of praying for four months. What? The month Chivlu is when he got the news. If you look in chapter 2 and verse 1, and it came to pass in the month Nisan, the 20th year of Artaxerxes, that's when he went and gave it to the king, and he had brought up his news to the king. Now you might say, well, is that just when it was his turn to go and serve the king? Maybe we don't know. Did he have to wait that long before he had an audience with the king? Maybe, but probably not. Probably he was just waiting and praying and talking to the Lord and seeing what God would have him to do. You know, it's not a bad thing to seek the mind of God a while before you act on what you want to do. I tell you what, I'm sick of this job. I want to get another job. Seek the mind of God a while. See what he would have you do. I'm sick of this church. I want to go to another church. Somebody offended me. Seek the mind of God a while. It may be you need to learn a lesson about forgiveness and kindness and, 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 and confrontation and love instead of just moving on. I'm just sick of this town. I'm going to go somewhere else. A great, wise, scholarly theologian by the name of Jerry Toogood once taught me something. <laughs> he said, if you try to run from your problems, you'll find them when you get there because your problems run faster than you do. Pretty wise guy. I think it's because he's got very little hair. I think that's what it means. The less hair you have is a symbol of wisdom. Is that right, Brother Jerry? I think so. He's not wrong. Try to run from your problems. They'll probably find you when you get there. You know, it's a wise thing to seek the mind of God before you jump up and take action right away. Now, there's sometimes, if you know what to do, go back to the lesson of Kadesh Barnea, the people of God, when they came to Kadesh Barnea. When you know what to do, you go up at once and you do it. You don't just sit around hemming and hawing and waiting for special revelation when it's already obvious. Well, pastor, I don't know if I should come to church. The Bible says you ought to assemble with God's people. That shouldn't be something you got to hem and haw about. Well, preacher, I don't know if I should give my money to the Lord. God talks about that quite a bit. You know, preacher, I don't know if I should give up some of my ungodly entertainment. God's pretty clear about that. You know, preacher, I don't know if I should, you know, really commit to this woman and make her my wife. And that's something you ought to seek the Lord about for a little while, but it sure is better than living a, 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 a promiscuous lifestyle. You know what I'm talking about? There are certain things. You don't need to ask God. There are certain things you do need to ask God. God's already revealed something. You go up at once and do it. But the thing that you don't know, there is no thou shalt go restore the walls of Jerusalem, Nehemiah, written anywhere in the Old Testament. He had to seek God about the matter. And there's sometimes you're just going to need to seek the Lord about a job, about a spouse, about a move, about some of these things. Seek the Lord. Spend some time praying and fasting and ask the Lord for a burden to do the right thing. So this dynamic man of action. He's sitting there for four months praying. 
doing a lot of fasting. I know he couldn't have gone four months without eating anything. The Bible doesn't say he did. But he did fast and pray. He did seek the Lord. I'm not going to teach him a, a lesson tonight on fasting. We've taught on that before. I'd be happy to meet with you one-on-one if you want more indication. But in short, it is refraining from a natural, physical desire. Every time in the Bible, it's food. Some people with diabetes and things, you can't refrain from food, but you can refrain from another thing. You can say, I'm not going to watch television if that's part of your life. Or I'm not going to give myself this luxury or that for the purpose of just clarifying my prayer life. Of, of You say, you're twisting God's arm to action. No, 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 you can't. His arm's too big to twist. He's too big of a God. But you can clarify your motive. You can clarify your prayer life, and you can come before God with a pure heart. Fasting is a wonderful spiritual discipline. It's not utilized, I don't think, near enough in this day and age. Also, it may be that Nehemiah knew he had to wait some time. He's using exercising wisdom, not going right away. And there, again, that's wisdom too. You say, well, now's not a good time to bring up this idea with my boss or to go talk to uh, 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 this person over here about that job. This is just the wrong time. Be aware of that. Be sensitive to that. Seek the Lord about that. Not only that, so he's praying, he's fasting, and he's mourning. But then he had the faith. Now, we're not going to get into his prayer tonight for the sake of time, but if you read his prayer, he had the faith that God would do what he said he would do. He knew that God would eventually restore Jerusalem. He just wanted to be a small part of it. He wanted to be a part of God's program. I love that because there's so many times Christians want to see God do something, but they want to watch it from the sidelines. Nehemiah said, put me in, coach. I want to be involved. I want to be a part of what you're doing. I want to be integral to your plan. I will be. I am willing to throw the, the, the football. I am willing to go down the sidelines. I am willing to put myself on the line to get your work done. What a powerful lesson we can learn from Nehemiah. You say, well, yeah, that's a leader for you. I think all Christians ought to be willing to do whatever part God would have them to play. You may not be the ultimate leader of, this, of the project like Nehemiah was, but are you willing to get involved and get your hands dirty and get your maybe squeeze your budget tighter or, or uh, squeeze your schedule tighter in order to help along the things of God, what God is doing in a place? I mean, I think, and I'm not going to say this, I'm not going to silly, like manufacture emotion here tonight, but I'm just going to ask you to think logically with me. Don't you want to see God move in Casper, Wyoming? Of course you do. And we could go on talking about that building up emotion, and I'm not, I'm not trying to do that. I want you to think about it. All of us would agree. We would love to see a massive revival take over. We'd love to see hundreds and thousands of people saved in our town. We'd love to have to build new buildings because we couldn't fit people in the churches that are here. We would all want that. But how many of us are willing to go do the work required if God requires some work? How many of us would pray and fast? How many of us would go and tell people about Jesus? How many of us would give up some time, give up some money, give up some of what we have in order to see God's kingdom go forward? We all want it to happen. Every Jew wanted Jerusalem to be rebuilt. But Nehemiah was asking God, would you please put me in? Would you please make me a part of your plan? He wept. Now, one man said this, what makes people laugh or weep is often an indication of character. People who laugh at others' mistakes or misfortunes or who weep over trivial personal disappointments or lacking in culture, character, possibly both. Sometimes weeping is a sign of weakness, but for Nehemiah it was a sign of strength. Just like with Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 9, Paul in Acts chapter 20, and even the Lord Jesus, Luke 19, 41. 
fact, Nehemiah was like the Lord, that he willingly shared the burden that was crushing others. The reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. In Psalm 69. And here you have Nehemiah, who is willing to suffer from a, from a position of luxury, willing to suffer with his brothers and sisters, willing to mourn and weep and be burdened to see God do something great. When God puts a burden on your heart, can I encourage you, don't try to escape it. Don't try to shrug it off. If you do, you might miss the blessing that he has planned for you. I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you, I'm human. When I had that opportunity to give that family $500, I thought about shrugging that burden off. God had given me a burden to help them. Come on, you know how it is. You get $500 around the holidays, the first thing that's on your mind is not giving it away. I hope. hope not the only one. Am I the only carnal Christian here? That's always my first thought. Think of thinking of buying something real nice for my wife. Thinking about something, buying something real nice for me. Come on, I'm being honest. May as well. I was thinking about maybe having a little bit of cushion in the bank account for a little while. Thinking about doing some nice things. But instead of shrugging off that burden, I'm thankful at least that time I let the Lord burden me. And it made me think about their needs greater than my own needs. And I did that small act of service. And God used that in a mighty way. Do you know that later on, not through that family, but through other people, we received thousands of dollars in gifts when we were trying to have Beniah. And we needed thousands of dollars in gifts. Well, Pastor, are you saying that's all because you gave 500 bucks? No, 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 not necessarily. But what I am saying is I'm glad I got to be the part of leaving somebody else's burden. And I'm so very thankful that God was also moving other people and those people were willing to be a part of alleviating ours. Isn't it wonderful how that the kingdom of God can work that way? Lord, what can I do to alleviate a burden? It may be, I say, Pastor, I don't have much. I can't give much. Maybe do what you can and see God might burden someone else to help you. But if we as Christians can learn to be responsive to the burdens he places upon us, that's when we're going to see God do something great. The book of Nehemiah begins with great affliction. We saw that in verse 3. They're in great affliction. But if you get to the end in chapter 8 and verse 12 and 17, it ends with great joy. The great burden often leads to great joy. Like Psalm 30 and verse 5 says, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. The absolute truth. Nehemiah had an attitude of faith. He believed that God would do what he said he would do. He believed that God was going to do something great, and he just wanted to be a part of it. He wanted to see those promises fulfilled. And he prayed and he sorrowed and he desired it. If, when we get to his prayer, you'll see his heart just come forth and you'll see that desire very, very clearly. He purposed to cooperate with God so that God's will would happen. And he expressed his commitment with his activity. And again, four months he stayed here praying and fasting and weeping before he got to go to the king and set the next chain of events into motion. But as we consider Nehemiah's burden tonight, the title of the message again is to have a burden. I hope I've impressed upon you as we go through Nehemiah's life how important it is for us as believers to allow God to give us a burden and not to shake it off and shrug it off, but to say, God, I want to do something with this burden. I want to be a part of what you're going to do. So when you hear the trials of others, when you hear of a situation and you are burdened, here's five things that I wrote down just from what we looked at in chapter one and maybe looking forward to chapter two for one of them. Number one, weep. Let your emotions be touched. 
there's somebody that you have a heart for. There's, there's people that I work with that I have been able to talk to about the Lord Jesus Christ. I have wept for them as I pray for them. I've tried to share the gospel with them. There, there's people that you work with the same way. You might have family members that you have wept for. There might be a missionary come through and shows you the picture, shows you the fly, then your heart is burdened for that country. It's okay to weep. Let it touch your heart. Remember those things as you pray. Let your emotions be touched. I understand that we don't want to be a church that is ruled by emotion. We don't try to go get crazy and try to release all inhibitions and just go nuts for no reason or just to have an experience. We don't just forsake that and let emotions rule. But my goodness, God gave us emotions for a reason. It ought to move us to action, motivate us. So weep. Secondly, pray. Well, secondly, I better get my wallet out. No, pray. Well, I better do something about it. I, and you very well may be able to. Pray. Go to the Lord first. We have such a wonderful group of people at Lighthouse Baptist Church. Constantly I have people saying, you know, preacher, I want to take care of that. Hey, preacher, we're going to get this. I want to get this for the church and I'll buy it. I praise the Lord for that. I generally will say something like this. So you know what, brother so-and-so, if God has led you to buy that, then I don't want to get in the way of you being a part of what God is doing. But if you haven't prayed about it, this isn't a burden God's placed on your heart then the church will reimburse you for those supplies. We have it in the budget for those things, outreach ministry or, or maintenance ministry or whatever. We'll reimburse you. That, that's something the church has in the budget. My biggest concern is not so much where the money's coming from. It's all his and it's all going to go to his kingdom. My biggest concern is that a person is truly burdened for the work and that they're praying about it and they feel God wants them to be involved in that ministry. If not, that's okay. You say, you know, I haven't really prayed about it yet. Let, let me pray about it and see if what the Lord have me to do. Maybe I would just have the church reimburse the cost, or maybe the Lord is going to put it on my heart, and I'll just feel this is what God wants me to do. So, yes, be moved, pray, even fast. That's step number three. Deny your own desires for the purpose of praying with devotion and seeking God's will. Fourthly, have faith in God. Believe that God is going to do something about it. Continue to pray. Consistency, four months of praying and seeking the Lord. Trust that God is going to meet a need and that you may very well be involved in that. And then lastly, we'll see this in chapter 2. Let your risk to help be taken in the confidence of much prayer. As you have prayed and as you have prayed, you're going to step out there and take that risk, whether to give 500 bucks away whether to ask a big favor of a king, whether to change your entire future. That's what Nehemiah did here, by the way, in chapter 2. Change the entire course of his future. Some would say for good, some would say for worse, but he changed his entire course of his future. Let your risk to help be taken in the confidence of much prayer. So my, my encouragement to you tonight, Pastor, I want to do great things for God. I want to attempt great things for God and expect great things from God, like William Carey said, and I hope that you do. But can I ask you to do this? Would you pray that God would give you a burden? Would you pray that God would lead you and guide you? Pastor, I just want to serve in every area possible. Praise the Lord. We need servants in the church. We need servants in our community. And maybe say, God, what ministry would you give me a passion for, a burden for? Who is it that you have just given me just some, an achy heart to see people come to the Lord or to see people grow in God? Maybe it's the little children. Maybe it's a different area. There we have some people, the men in the church, that are passionate about security. They want to protect the people of God. Praise the Lord for that. We have people in the church that are passionate about helping little kiddos. You say, I'm not passionate about changing diapers, but I'm passionate about helping mamas. 
Praise the Lord for that. People that are passionate about all kinds of different things. Ask the Lord to give you a burden and say, and from that, start to pray and start to seek God and say, what can I do to get involved? You might hear of a trial that someone in our church is going through. Weep for them, pray for them, fast for them, and seek, Lord, what would you have me to do to get involved?